period is officially over and Sale have the first bump in the road in the Alex Axe Sanderson era. My name is Lewis, welcome back to the Shark Tank and joining me to discuss a pretty disappointing Friday night that saw Sale beating 27 points to 22 by Bath and my co-hosts Alex and James. Alex, how are you? Uh, okay, so mate, it's, uh, it was a shame and it wasn't pretty watching but it's done and we move on and we take the bonus point and we put it out of our minds forever, I think. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, not too bad. I think you, you're always going to get games like this in, in a premiership that is uh, so competitive, but it is always really disheartening to lose at home and to lose to a pretty crap bath team as well. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, James, how are you? Um, yeah, a bit disappointed. I think... Um... The, the only consolation, as Alex said, is that we, we did take the losing bonus and we've taken one of those in every game we've lost so far this season. So you know, I wouldn't say we're sort of miles off. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into the discussion and unpicking it a bit more. So let's um, let's actually start. We've, we've not done this for a, a little bit of time. Uh, let's do some three-word reviews. So thank you to everyone who was on it on, a, on Friday night, late Friday night. Uh, we're recording the pod on, on Saturday morning. Um, so Peter Taylor... Too much rotation. Uh, Gareth Cornelius, fringe below standard. Uh, Matt L, too many rotations. Niall Martin, overreaction not required. James Elzender, too many changes. Richard Higgs, absolute banana skin. And uh, Grizzly, uh, back to reality. Um, Alex, there's, there's something I want to jump off, jump on straight away. And it came up a lot in our three word reviews, and, and that's rotation. I mean, Sale come into this game, they make sort of nine or ten changes from the, from the team that. Uh, you know, quite comprehensively um, beat Bristol. Um, and indeed, the, the team that, that beat, you know, Leicester in, in Axe's uh, first game in charge, you know, Conor Doherty gets a start, Tom Rogel gets a start, there's a mass rotation in the, in the forwards as well. I mean, do you think that, because this is a banana skin sort of performance, you know, we should have beaten Bath, we're at home, etc., and it's a bit of an upset. Do you think we can attribute that down to the not just the changes that were made from our first team to, to our sort of second team players, but also the volume of changes that were made. I mean, yeah, I think there's a potential argument for that, isn't there? Because of how sort of, I, I sort of want to say disjointed. It's not quite the right word, but, but you know, you could tell that this was a, there were a few players in positions that hadn't played together. And I think what, what the issue probably was, was inexperienced players being rotated in in some positions, like of Connor Doherty and Tom Roebuck, but then being sort of, they're very reliant when they come in for their first team games on having a solid platform around them. You know, you can't, you can't expect, if Marcus Smith had Will Cliff dropping balls off the back of lineouts and the forwards messing, like, you know, giving messy ball from the breakdown, he wouldn't be a good player. And it's the same for having Connor Doherty at 13. You know, you just, we, we really struggled with any sort of composure, I think. And I think fundamentally that has to come down to the experienced players rather than the 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 youthful players we're trying to bring through. And you know, it was quite good to see that Sanderson in his post match interview said, you know, they will get another opportunity. This isn't we you've played once and and like some people want to do, just drop them straight away and say you'll never play for sale again, because that is ridiculous. Um but it's you know, it's really, really harsh on them to come into a squad. And I think it's probably a lesson for Sanderson in how to rotate between having some experienced players and the youthful players, but making sure that when you bring in them through, 
they are supported by a better base than they had because from minute one of that game, Wilcliffe kicks the ball out on the full and that just doesn't, you know, that sets us back and then we miss the tackle off the back of a line out and bath her over in the corner. And that isn't, you know, Connor Doherty's fault for Tom DeGlanville going out on the outside or Tom Roebuck's. That's if you let any professional rugby team in the Premiership have a 22 attacking line out and then let them build momentum from their phases and give away penalties so they've got penalty advantage, they will score. And, you know, that is just a, a fact of playing in this league, which is competitive. And yeah, Bath aren't a great team, but they've still got some really, really good players. And we said it, you know, when we were previewing this game, um, you know, they are still dangerous. They've still got the likes of Ben Spencer and Reese Priestland. So I think um, it, it's certainly a lesson in, in terms of rotation. I'm sure Sanderson will learn from it um, and sort of begin to tweak that. But I do think there is a wider point here around building a squad that can compete on Premiership and European funds. And if you want that, you have to be able to rotate. And it's what Sarri's had. You know, if, if he was at Sarri's and he was bringing on Wigglesworth or Spencer at night, they wouldn't, yeah, they would be far, far higher standard than Will Cliff was on on Friday night. Um, and, you know, I, I think that is probably just a bit of a learning curve for how this squad needs to be able to learn to live with rotation because it's going to happen. So maybe, I don't, I, I don't know, I think there's a lot of, lot of factors in it, but I do think we should be forgiving of the younger players and more critical of those experienced players who, who should have performed better for me. And, and off that then, James, so, you know, as it stands here Saturday morning, obviously a lot of teams haven't played this weekend yet. You know, Sailor's still third in the table. You know, there's a chance to kind of close the gap or, or narrow the gap, you know, with, with Exeter and Bristol um, above us. Um, you know, coming into the game last week, we said, you know, Bath in really poor form, shipping a lot of points. You know, they're a team where we should be sort of looking to, to win. Do you think it's fair to characterise this loss as, a, as an upset and, and one that we really should have won? Yeah, absolutely, and we should have we should have won it on the day as well. You know, we we played well enough to win that game. That the problem was we made two or three very big errors, and we shipped like twenty odd points because of that. And I think you know conceding so early before we even turned up, conceding you know in and around half time, um, you know we just left too much of ourselves to do. The second half was a much better performance, partly because of people coming off the bench, but also partly because we switched on. Right from the beginning of the second half, we switched on. Um, some of our more experienced sort of second-choice players, like Rob Dupree, I thought, you know, showed a lot of courage, really, coming out and playing the way he did in the second half, because in the first half, he was awful. Um, and, um, you know, I think Alex has hit the nail on the head there, which is Alex Anderson has learned a big lesson. You know, Saris would only ever rotate 10 in or whatever it was into the team during Six Nation periods when half the team suddenly disappeared. Yeah. It's the same with Exeter. They only ever do, you know, four or five rotations, but they rotate and everyone's got a job in the squad. And I think that what he thought was that our pack would blast Bath's pack into smithereens, a bit like a dimes decision, um, and that Cliff and Rob Dupree were experienced players at nine and ten. Um, Will Cliff has been brilliant for us, hasn't he, last two seasons, so we can't hammer in too much. But it was the worst game he's had for sale for a long time. Um, then you add that to Rob Dupree, who's lacking confidence. Sam Hill is not locking down this side. Um, I think it's sort of you know exposed that he you know cog in our first choice side. All right, 
but he's not been able to hold together, you know, a 10 inside him with no confidence, a nine who's having a poor game, and a 13 who's making his second appearance for sale, starting appearance for sale outside of him. Um, and I think that we just went in with too much inexperience and too much change in decision-making positions. We had Dan Dupree back, who had a really good game at eight, but hadn't played for a few weeks. You had Cliff, who hasn't started a game for a while. Rob Dupree, who's not started at 10 for a long time. We brought Hammersley, who's been injured and hasn't started at 15 for a long time either. So you've got a load of decision-makers who haven't played much. Then you suddenly throw in Doherty and Roebuck. And okay, they didn't play brilliantly, did they? They were a bit lost. But, you know, it's understandable they're a bit lost when the experienced players around them aren't playing very well and making basic mistakes and bringing pressure onto the team. Alex had it exactly right. You know, Cliff kicks it out on the full. Then we're missing tackles around the fringes. Um, You know, JP Dupree is throwing it as hard as he can at Will Cliff's feet. You know, it's just... It, it was just a bit of a shambles start. And when you ship that many points, we know in the Premiership, especially with our attack, you know, we don't score enough tries. In normal circumstances, 22 points is enough for Sale to win a game. And I think you've made a very good point there about kind of setting that platform up. And I think I don't think there's anyone who isn't culpable, you know, in this defeat because there was a sort of sense that, you know, we'd, we'd have the pack to kind of push path around and, and kind of build that platform to, to allow those players, you know, Roebuck, Hill, etc., to get into the game. But even at scrum time, you know, um, Harrison and Deuce Hazen, you know, were both under a lot of pressure. I thought the Bath front row uh, had a fantastic game all around in terms of, you know, carrying in the loose, moving the ball around, making the, all the tackles. And obviously at the scrum time, they had, they seemed to have the edge on, on sale a couple of times and, and that led to sort of, you know, penalties that eased the pressure when they're in their own 22, etc., I'm not convinced Kearney Hughes-Tazen is, you know, our, our first choice tight head prop. You know, I think it's the results that we've seen in the sort of 18 months he's been here have been stronger when he's been at loose head. Now, you've obviously got Ross Harrison there and you have to kind of find that balance. And with Wilgriff John leaving, which we'll talk about momentarily, um, you know, there's not really a lot of um, depth of that position, you know, whereas at loose head there is. But, you know, I think he's had a really, you know, tough couple of games, even coming off the bench, you know, and, and you know, that again, impacts the platform that you can give those players. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned attacking structure, James, because this, this one's a question for Alex, but I'm going to say my piece first, which is, you know, the attacking structure is just, it's just woeful. Um, you know, you look at players like Sam Hill, Simon Hammersley, who I thought was, was had a pretty poor game. Um, you know, when you look at the performances that, you know, they had, and, I think a lot of it is symptomatic of our attacking structure. So in that first half, we had Rob Dupree lining up so deep in the number 10 position, um, you know, shipping the ball out to Sam Hill. Sam Hill's a game line carrier at 12. You're supposed to give him the ball, you know, when he's running onto it and he can sort of clobber into to the defensive line. You know, we were giving him the ball sort of 10, 15 yards back from the, from the game line and said, okay, right, do something with that. Um, you know, and, and that wasn't happening. Poor Simon Hammersley. You know, it, he had sort of three or four hospital passes thrown thrown to him out the back from Rob Dupree, where it was so easy for Max Clark and Josh Matavesi in the Bath midfield um, to kind of to, to rush up. And Hammersley doesn't have that sort of evasiveness with his feet or the kind of speed to to get around that rush rush defence. And you know, I think you, you, defensively, obviously, twenty seven points is I think the most we've conceded, conceded this year. You know, it's a pretty poor performance, but you can kind of highlight, you know, um, Conor Doherty's kick to nobody, 
leading to 60 metres back the other way. Um, you, you know, the missed tackle uh, within the first minute. Those are the moments ultimately Bath capitalised on and, and led to, to them racking up such a significant points haul. But offensively, Alex, you know, are you as worried as I am about the attacking structure? Because at one point we were going through 20, 30 phases against a team that's conceded 40 plus points in each of its last three games and we didn't even look remotely close to scoring. I think there's a concern, but I do, I think, you know, had we not made three poor sort of very, very low level rugby mistakes, Bath wouldn't have scored three tries because every try of theirs came from a a. a a poor mistake. And I think, you know, the first one is Will Cliff kicking out in the full and then a missed tackle, which compounds it. The second one is not being able to control our own ball at the base of a brook. So it gets kicked out because by JP Debrea when he's trying to clear out and Bath then break up the field and go 80 metres. And the third one is the Conor Doherty kick that then, you know, is leads to Zach Mercer going 80 metres up the field. So I do think I'd I'd sort of caveat this with the fact that we wouldn't be talking about this if we were more accurate in executing our basics which is exactly what we were very good at against Bristol and you know we I think we have to be careful because we came on a rave against Bristol about how good we were and how well we executed a game plan and actually we did very very similar things we just didn't make those three mistakes and if we'd beaten Bath 22 you know how many points would they have scored six we'd have all been laughing um and we might have said, oh, there's a bit of worry about the attacking structure. But yeah. I think part of the problem is the rotation. And I think what we haven't got is a sufficient attacking identity in the squad to be able to say, okay, this is how we attack. Let's bring in Conodarity and let's bring in Rob Debrea. Because we play so differently with AJ and with Rob Debrea and similarly with Faf and with Will Cliff. That we don't we don't have that sort of you know okay if you are a young lad coming through the academy this is how we play rugby it's it's kind of like okay well if you're playing with AJ you need to play like this and then if you're playing with Rob you need to play like this and if you're playing with Will you, need to, you know it's it's sort of um it, it's it's quite it's, it's tough isn't it when you know when you you're coming into the first team to be able to adapt to that you've sort of got to think of four different combinations and I think you know. Three of them were present on uh, on Friday night. But is that not the job of someone like Paul Deacon then to implement that attacking structure uh, so those players can drop into it? Yeah, partly. But I do think that AJ and Rob are never going to play in the same way. And Will Cliff and Faf are certainly never going to play in the same way. So, you know, I think there needs to be some clarity on what combinations we're going to use if we're going to pers- persist with these four players in those key key decision-making positions because, I mean, to be honest, the other point here is that Rob Dupree didn't have a great first half and Will Cliff had a dreadful game compared to his usual standards. Um, and that's not me having a go at him because as James rightly says, he's been a fantastic player for a long, long time. Um, and therefore, your attacking structure is never going to get going. But I do think, you know, we showed a few sort of flashes of what we can do. It was just execution of basics that did cost us. And... You know, that Conor Doherty kick is a prime example. If that if boot goes to ball, if you look at it, he's got it's the right decision to make because there's four or five bath defenders on three sail attackers. There's space in behind, he's got Roebuck who's gonna absolutely fly through. So it is the right decision. It's just executed poorly. And and I think that was 
a part of a lot of the problems. Rob Capri's passes to Simon Hammersley, again, it was just, you know, we were manipulating the defence to create the space, but then there was a choice of pass, and the choice of pass was not the one Simon Hammersley. Because, we you know, we were taking Simon Hammersley behind the line, who was then just getting lined up and hit, whereas if we'd had Sam Hill on a short line coming in off Rob Capriya, you know, with Hammersley running behind, if they line up Hammersley, Sam Hill goes through. Um, so I think, I think there were concerns, but I do think we need to kind of work out what... And, and you are right, it is Paul Deacon's job to, to implement the attacking structure, but Will Cliff is never going to play the same way as Bath. And I think if you find a halfway house attacking structure that suits them both, you dull both of their talents. So it's a very difficult job. And I think it's it's about, I, I fundamentally come back to if players execute, we win that game. Um, and therefore, while the attacking, you know, while the attacking ones are uh, concerning, that will come over one, two, three seasons as Sanderson kind of builds in who he knows he's going to select and Deacon can work with that and then go, okay, this is the way we play. This is when we have these players on the field, et cetera, et cetera. And I think now when we're in the phase we are, which is new DOR, um, still in kind of a bit of a transition phase post-dimes, you just need players to execute well to win games and they didn't. So yes, let's have a conversation about the attacking structure and, and what Paul Deacon needs to do. And I don't think he's lit up the world by any means, but I also don't think we should go the attack is the reason that we're losing games because it's not, you know, there is there is enough talent and enough good attacking moves in that team to do better. And and that's the frustrating thing, isn't it? That, you know, we're not going to overreact because we are in third and we probably will be in third at the end of the weekend. But we are kind of, it's the classic sale of you see how good we could be and then you see us make basic mistakes that don't get us there. Yeah, I think you've hit a nail on the head. The, the reason why we lost was two things, execution and selection. Um, you know, we were as disjointed defensively in the backs, especially as we were disjointed in attack in the backs. And, and the reason for that is that you've, you know, you had Cliff having a, a, a poor game, Rob Dupree trying to find his feet. <clears throat> McGinty found it difficult coming back into the side after injury when we'd built the attack around Rob. Um, last season, you know, they do play differently and, and Rob's then trying to fit into a new structure and he hasn't played there for a while. It is difficult both ways. Um, and then you've got Samuel's never played with Doherty. It's Doherty's second game. Samuel's only played a handful of games for sale anyway. As Sam Hill, like, he's barely played at all with Rob Dupree because he's usually coming, you know. And then you've got a back three that have never played together either. And Hammersley, when was the last time he played 15 for us? So it, it was selection... And then you add in, as you said, execution. And Bath just killed us, you know, with every mistake that we made. And I think they did quite a lot with very little possession and territory. And in, in normal circumstances, with cool heads and good decision-making and good execution, we would have won that game. And actually, you know, based on the second-half performance, if we hadn't have had, you know, brain farts right at the beginning of the first half and in and around half-time, we would have won that game still anyway. Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned that, actually. So just some kind of quick hits to kind of um, summarise how the game went. Sale had 66% of possession. Uh, they had 67% of territory. Uh, and these figures all go up in the second half as well. Sale made 500 metres and Bath made 300. Sale beat 37 defenders to 16 at Bath. 
So that's 74 game line carries to bats 27. I mean, it doesn't really matter which which numbers you kind of pluck pluck out of the air. Um, this was a sucker punch performance by Bath, and I think credit has to go to them because he took the chances very well. Um, and, and ultimately, Sale were found lacking when when they were sort of in the uh, the favourites position and, and maybe should have done a lot more with, with that possession and territory. Um, but, I mean, as, as we've kind of all alluded to, there's sort of no point, no reason to sort of overreact. I think you can attribute this back to selection and basics, as, as both James and Alex have mentioned. You know, and, and as Alex alluded to, uh, you know, Sale is still third in the table. They are going to be in the top four um, by by the end of the weekend, regardless of what happens in the Quinns-Leicester game uh, later this afternoon. Um, you know, so after, you know, nine games nearly halfway through the season, Sale, you know, won six, lost three, still in a pretty decent position. Um so just quickly then, James, what has come to you in terms of kind of positives? Because obviously there's a, there's there's always sort of, you know, some positives to take out of a game, especially one in which you are still picking up a losing bonus point. So did anyone catch your eye out of uh, uh, out of the, the team on Friday? Not many of the backs, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but in the forwards, there were some good performances. Dan Dupree being back was a big a big thing for us. He's a, he's a high-quality number eight. I, I, I thought Jean-Luc had a good game. But I do. I don't think we have the right balance in the team when we play both of them in the back row. Uh, I just. I just don't. And I think defensively, ruck defence, that kind of thing. You know, um, I thought Cam Neal showed again why he just needs a run in this side when he came off the bench. You know, he, he's exactly an Alex Anderson type player. You know, he's. You know, if he can stay fit, he's going to get a lot of game time under Alex Anderson. I think. Um, and then you know in in the in the front row, I thought we struggled um, until Ashman came on. I thought Ashman, you know, again showed that he's got some some talent there. I think, but where we struggle with both Ashman and uh, Langdon is, I think that opposition front rows attack attackers in the hooker channel and the scrum. It's not all about the um, it's not all about the props. I think we are a little bit underweight with Langdon and uh, I mean, in fact, all three of our hookers. Like it's really noticeable with Weber not there how our um, our scrummaging has, has changed. Um, to be to be honest, and I thought Jono had a good game. So I thought our back row had a reasonable game. I thought our second row was all right, but you know I think that Phillips isn't having quite the impact that he's had in previous seasons. And I think JP Dupria, right? He does some good things, but he has some clumsiness as well. He, he, he makes mistakes when for unforced errors, I'd call them, like in tennis. You know, he doesn't make mistakes like under pressure necessarily. He makes them like, you know, receiving a kickoff or in a line out where there's no competition from the opposition or shooing a, a ball into touch, you know, clumsy at the ruck or, you know, throwing the ball at Wilkes' feet, that kind of thing. I'd, I would need to see more consistency and accuracy. So in answer to your question, <laughs> Ashman and kneeled off the bench. And I thought the back row had a good game, but it was not balanced well enough. Ashman looks a real talent. He he made a massive impact when he came on, but it's a great point as well about how opposition teams attack us in the hooker channel at the uh, at the scrum as well. And I thought Tom Dunn on the other side as as Bath's hooker who played the full eighty, he had a fantastic game, um, and it was a big part of the reason for, for their success in that area. Um, Alex, you know, before we move on, then is there any anyone else you want to kind of shout out um, from from Friday? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think what I would say is that Tom Roebuck and Conor Doherty, I think, are really, really good players. And I think you saw in very, very brief flashes in a poorly performing team what they can bring to this side. And I think 
we just need to be really, really patient with them because you know we talk about we talk about bringing youth through, and we you know there are always going to be pains with that. There are going to be poor performances, and there are going to be inexperienced performances. So, you know, I I still think when I look at them both, and I think Conor Doherty especially, I remember seeing him. It was maybe either last season or the season before when we got he, he played a couple of games and and maybe one of them was that battering by Glasgow and I didn't think he looked quite ready. I think he looks ready for the first team now, and I just think he needs to be brought in in better circumstances probably. Um, so I would sort of say I think I think the positive is that we've got two really really good young players from our academy there who we can who I think will genuinely bring a lot to the team. Um, and I'm not saying that they had the best game of their lives last night, but I, I do think we should be really, really patient with them and and be proud that we brought them through. Um, and then, sorry, James, go on. Yeah, I was just, I was just going to say, I, I just wouldn't play them together for a while. But I, I like what Sanderson said after the game, sort of say these guys are going to get another chance. And I think that Roebuck or one of Roebuck or Doty should start next week. I think it would be just, an, you know, it's a risk. Don't get me wrong. Diamond wouldn't take it, but if you take it, one of them plays and you win next week. The signal that sends to the squad is just enormous. It would do eno- like enormous things for the mental strength of of that player and for the the broader squad. So I, I would say, you know, one of Doherty or Roebuck starts or is at least on the bench next week and gets some good game time. Yeah, and I, I think to be fair, the other thing I was thinking about this is that our defense is so reliant on that thirteen channel that it is quite difficult for someone to come in at 13 or winger because that's where we put all our pressure on. So, you know, you are right that having them playing together, if they attack down Roebuck's wing, you guys that you want to put pressure on are two, Doherty and Roebuck, who, you know, are trying to play in that defensive system. So it's as much about that as, you know, getting them into that defensive system as it is about the attacking side. And then the only other positive, I I won't pick out any players, but... um, I thought the fact that we executed at the end to get the bonus point, I I think that's something we wouldn't have done in the past. I think we'd have made an error and and just lost the game. And I think it does show a bit of heart and a bit of desire. And you could see it when Neil went over. You know, yeah, we we lost the game and you shouldn't be celebrating that. But to kind of, when you're under pressure in the 80th minute, when you know that a knock-on will end the game, that... What AJ did to you know get through the defensive line, and then the offload to Neil, and the execution and the accuracy there is exactly the sort of thing that we needed throughout the game and, and didn't have. But I do think that's a massive, massive positive, and I think you know we shouldn't underestimate the kind of what that gives the squad because it's the difference between going going away from taking nothing at home to going into next week and saying, okay, we know we made these errors. But look at what we can do when we execute. Um, we were under a bit of pressure there, and um, you know that has been sales' problem for a long time. That when we're under pressure and when we need to, you know, get over from five meters in the 80th minute and not make a mistake at rook time and not give away a penalty, we we fail in those situations historically. So I do think it's it's a good kind of sign that we were able to execute that accurately and take away the bonus point. You know, no one likes to lose, but if you're gonna, you know, if you more than seven points adrift when the clock hits 80. I think a bonus point has to be seen as a positive. And I think let's leave it there uh, in terms of positives from the game and and put a bow on this one and and move on. So a little bit of news to discuss and we'll we'll come on to that right at the end of the pod. Um, But we want to turn our attention to Sale's next game, which is away at Harlequins next Saturday at one o'clock. 
obviously, as we've mentioned, uh, we're recording this Saturday morning, so uh, Quinn's uh, game this weekend against Leicester is, is still an unknown uh, to us. So, obviously, um, in terms of how it's going to shape up the top four race, is uh, still a little bit unbeknownst to us. Um, but here to give us a bit of a preview of what to expect from Quinn's uh, next weekend, uh, as always, is, uh, is James. Cheers, mate. Um... As ever, there's just never an easy game, is there, in this league? And now we've lost one, you suddenly look at this in a very different light than if we'd won against Bath. You sort of look at it thinking, oh, no, this this is not ideal. It's bad timing. How th- things change so quickly? Um, Quinns were in disarray three weeks ago. You know, coach leaving, you know, well, what's going on behind the scenes? The club's rotten. It's all about player power. Suddenly, they could be above us in the league. But by the time we play them next, um, and you know, on on a three win trot, so um, look, I mean, Quins are have been hugely inconsistent. They've been inconsistent for most of the time that I've been following rugby, apart from the year that they won the Premiership. Quins have always been inconsistent, and that's definitely the story of them again this year. Um, and. I've always known them to be a free-flowing side that when it clicks, they score a lot of tries. And it's exactly the same this year, even under Gustard. In the games that they win, they score big. They, they scored 28 points against Bath, 49 against Wasps, 34 against Gloucester and 49 against Saints. I mean, you know, scores in the 30s are things that sail, you know, we I can't remember the last time that we're sort of scoring in the 30 points uh, regularly. So, you know, look, they're... They do score, but they also usually concede a lot. Um, but in the last two games, they've started to get their defence sorted. Really ironically, with Gustard, king of defence, left the club. And now against Watson Bath, they've brought the, the, the conceding down to 17 and 15. You know, usually they're conceding 20-plus in most of the other games. Um, 17 and 15, suddenly you're thinking, OK, that's highly competitive against a sales side that struggles to score tries. Um, certainly struggles to score, try, try bonus point wins. So if they they if they've sorted out their defence, but they're still good in attack, this is this is looking like a bad combination for Sale at the moment. Um, so uh, they play Tigers um, at home today. You'd expect them to pick up a five point win. Uh, I think looking at the teams and then be above us in the table. Um, Gustard was unlucky. I think. I think there, there was you know. Performance was enough there. I, I don't think he's been sacked on performance. I think he's been sacked on kind of fit. Uh, and I think he felt it as much as the, the players did. But the, the player power at Quinns is a scary thing. It really is a scary thing. But like, like you know, Rob Shaw, Brown, Danny Kerr, historically, they run that club. Uh, Brown is obviously off at the end of the season. Rob Shaw's already gone. Um, Kerr's still around, creating havoc. Um, but they are now hitting form. And they've re-signed Marcus Smith, which... You know, it was Smith to Bath was, I think, a verbally done deal. And, of course, Bath have suddenly decided before they played us to forget how to play rugby. Um, and uh, Quinns have suddenly found their mojo. Marcus Smith looks like he's really wanting it badly as well. Looking at his behaviour on the pitch, the other when I saw him play last weekend, he, he is really up for this at the moment and wants to create something good at Quinns, which I think is a worry for sale. Um, looking at the playing squad, there's been huge turnover, enormous turnover between the start of last season and the start of this season. Uh, Autorat's gone to Saints, Sinclair to the Bears, uh, Francis Saili, Ibatoya, 
Gonover have all gone to, and Semi Kunitani have all gone to France. Robshaw's gone to the US. Crumpton, Lambert, Clifford, Buchanan have all retired. Ashton's gone mid-season to Worcester. I mean, that is a large amount of your first-team squad gone in 12 months. I mean, a huge amount. Um, so it's understandable that they're only just starting to hit their stride, really, I think, is the point. Um, coming in, obviously, they've got Marchant back from the Blues. Uh, and he's a high-quality player who should be in around the, the England squad. Joe, Joe Gray's come back from Saracens. That They've also dipped in for South Africans, just the same as every other team in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, Esther Hoisen, uh, Wilco Lowe, Tyrone Green, all in from South Africa. I think they've all added something to the, the Quinn's squad. Um, Esther Hoisen especially gives them go forward, you know, a lot of go forward. I think that if Sam Hill's playing at 12, he's going to have his, his hands full defensively there. And the, the win rate that Quinn's have with Esther Hoisen at 12, I think he's he's either unbeaten or it's a ridiculous win rate. So, um, that watch out for him. Yeah, he makes like Van Rensburg and Manu Tulangi look small, basically. Um, and then in terms of players to look out for, I've mentioned Marcus Smith, but I think when he's on it, I, I, I think there isn't a better 10 in the league. I really don't. Uh, he's dangerous ball in hand. Um, one area that he needs to develop in is his kind of his, his role as a playmaker. He's clearly dangerous ball in hand because he's got quick feet and he's rapid off the mark. But actually, as a ball player making the right decisions ball in hand, and the range of his passing has needed work since he came in. And it's it's often a really underreported area because he's he's so dangerous as an individual rugby player. People think he's an attacking fly half. Well, he is an attacking fly half individually. He's not been brilliant at managing the Quinn's attacking structure and putting people into space. Joe Marchant, for example, doesn't has he hasn't had the best brought out of him by Marcus Smith over the last two or three years. Um so you know, but as he develops, as he as as he, you know, he's still extremely young. People forget that. You know, when you add in the fact that he kicks ninety percent plus of his goals at his age, when he gets the rest of his game in order and he starts managing his forwards around the park as well, um, uh, he is. I think he's going to be an international fly half. I really, really do. The other two players, Louis Liner, I wanted to flag. Uh, I think he's taken to top flight rugby like a Doctor Water. It's obviously in the genes. Um, he, I think he's the next 15 at Quinns with Brown off at the end of the season. Um, that's the that's the position that he played at age groups. Um, I think it's it's up in the air whether he'll play for England or whether he'll move to uh, Australia like his brother's just done. Um, also in the Quinns Academy, just moved to play in Australia. Um, so we'll watch this space. But I think he's a very balanced rugby player and has a natural gift for reading the game. Um, so watch out there. And then oh, Alex Dombrant's the last one I want to mention. I've been behind the curve of a lot of people. I think the media have got all their knickers in the twist about how brilliant Dombrant is. I think that he's not pushed on at all in the last 12 months. Um, I think he's obviously got some, you know, he's got natural size, um, very natural pace. Um, I think he in the last couple of weeks, he's always showed some signs of coming back into form. And I think we need to watch this. He's a bit like Ben Morgan for me. Um, you know, you need to stop him. The, the rest of the forward pack giving Dombrant a platform, just like Gloucester with Ben Morgan. If the Gloucester front five give Ben Morgan a platform and he starts fielding kicks in the back and gets up ahead of steam, you know, that's when it's like a juggernaut type effect. That's where Morgan's always been at his most effective. I think it's the same with Dombrant. If the Quinn's front five get parity, that's when Dombrant is very, very dangerous. So I, I think we need to beat them up front in the front five and then someone 
Cam Neald, for example, or John O'Ross, they need to do one on Don Brandt and cut him, cut his legs off before he's anywhere near the gain line. So that that's um, that's my look at, at, at Harlequins. Um, anything to add from you guys? I mean, it's worth pointing out the sales record at the Stoop is just awful. And for whatever reason, it's the one ground where we haven't been able to pick up a win. It, it's insane, it, actually, in the last couple of years, how we've been able to, you know, be more competitive at Sandy Park. Obviously, we won there, you know, a, a couple of years ago, you know, winning away at Saracens. And yet, for some reason, we just cannot seem to get over the hump um, uh, at the stoop. So, I, I, I'm not a big believer in sort of, you know, jinxes and hoodoo and all that kind of stuff, BT Sport Curse, whatever. But it's worth pointing out that for whatever reason, we just don't travel very well down to down to Harlequin. So, it'll be interesting, especially with it being a Saturday 1 o'clock kickoff, very early kickoff as well. But we have to travel down either on the day very early or the night before. You know, it's just a consideration where when you've got a team like Quinns, you like to play a lot of expansive running rugby, and that's not necessarily our forte. Um, you know, it's, it'd be really important that we get our legs underneath us very early doors. So that's the stoop as a, as a factor sort of out of the way. But, I mean, Alex, it'd be interesting to know if you agree with me here because, you know, you go down that Quinns team and you think, all right, they've got some good players, but there's nothing that kind of like jumps out at you as, as kind of world beaters, you know, in comparison to sales squad. Um, you know, A, do you agree with that? And B, knowing what we know about Quinns, you know, what sort of changes do you anticipate sale making or Sanderson making um, to, to kind of counter the, the upturn in form that Quinns have got at the moment? Yeah, well, I think Quinns sort of thrive on disorganisation, don't they? both on the field and clearly off it because, you know, once Gustav left, they started playing brilliantly. Um, and I think that is what we've always struggled with, especially at the Stoop, is that we are a team that that does well in organised scenarios. Look at the Bristol game, you know. They try and come at us and play, you know, cut through our 13 channel, our 12 channel, um, get ball off the base of the rook, and, and we just can't, you know, we, we just can shut that down quite easily. And I think what happens with Quinns is they pull us into a sort of open game. What tends to happen at the Stoop is that, you know, once the game expand, gets expansive, we really struggle. And it's happened at other places. And you think about that Northampton loss a few years ago when they put 60 points on us. Um, it's That's always the the thing that gets us with Quinns is that, you know, you get care on a run on on, on front football, on, on fast ball at the base of the rook. And, he gives it to Marcus Smith, who will do this. And, you know, once, once those two get going, it's really, really hard to stop. And and that's what you've got to shut down. You, you, you're right. You've got to shut down Don Brandt making the, the carries because he will, especially if he gets offloads away, he will tear us apart. And then he'll have care on, on the supporting lines who will who will run them in from, from all over. So I think it's a really difficult task. And, and I think this point about the stoop is that, you know, it's not the ground itself. It's the fact that, Quinns at the stoop have a confidence to play their sort of way, and we we fundamentally can't deal with that way of playing. So we have to learn how to shut that down. And I think it's it's difficult because you would you would say, oh, let's go for a similar approach to Bristol, but it's just never worked in the past. You know, it has worked against Bristol. We've been able to shut Bristol down at Ashton Gate before, and we have never been able to do it against Quinns. It's really hard. And I think in terms of changes. I think you have to bring Faf and AJ back purely on the basis of performance more than anything else. 
think you're absolutely right. You need someone in the job in the someone on the job in the back row of just chopping down Don Brandt and causing a bit of chaos at rook time. So it's got to be Neil or Doug Dale. Both both have done it very well. Um, so I think either, and I think going back to that Bristol game where you had Neil starting and then Doug Dale off the bench would be a, a, a really good way to do that. Um, and and James is absolutely right. We are going to have to to have at least parity, if not dominance, up front. And therefore, I think you go back to the front row where we have Will Griff, John on the tight head um, to to be able to do that because I just don't think we're quite getting it from Eustazen at tight head I, I, for whatever reason. It might be the fact that he is actually really a loose head. Um, but yeah, I think it's... Um, I'd have Will Griff, John back in. I think Langdon and Ashman are working quite well together. I'd certainly bring Beaumont back in if he's if he's fit. I think he he offers what JP Debrea does in terms of lineup strength, but he also offers a lot more around the field. Um, and then in the backs, I mean, obviously you've got to bring Sam Jones back in. Um, I think we we really can't argue with that as much as I I want to see Conor Doherty play, and I think Sam James is massively crucial to what we do. Um, I think Luke James at fullback will give us a bit of stability. I think he's on, in really good form at the moment. Um, and then, you know, on the on the wings, it's it's an interesting one because of how important that defensive wing sort of play is to our game. Um, and I think, in fairness, Byron McGuigan is playing relatively well and is, has historically been very good at that defensive structure, but maybe wasn't that effective on, on Friday night. I think... I certainly think Marlon Yard's got to come back in because he's shown that he can play in that structure and he's also able to, to finish them off. And I can see Lewis cheering. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's almost very similar back, going back to that Bristol game, which is a bit of a cop-out because obviously we won that Bristol game and performed really well. But I do think that you need De Klerk there to do a number on care because he has historically been able to disrupt care when he's played. Um, and... You know, you probably look at those stoop games. They tend to come maybe when De Klerk isn't available. I'm pretty sure one came at the start of the season and we have Cliff playing because De Klerk was at the World Cup. You know, I'm thinking of one of the bad ones. Um, so, you know, if we went back to that Bristol game, I wouldn't be... I, I think that's a, a sensible place to start. And then maybe you tweak that and say, OK, do we bring Roebuck in? Um, you know, do we sort of alter the pack slightly? But... It is, it's going to be a really, really difficult game because Quinns are massively on form and they're playing at home. And and you are right, Lewis, that despite the fact there's no crowd, it still makes a difference going to the stoop. And, and there are a few demons there for us. So we have to, you know, hopefully Sanderson coming in fresh means that he goes, right, this is bollocks about the stoop. They're just a team. You can beat them at home because we always beat Quinns at home and they always beat us when they're at home. So it's, you know, Take take the ground out of it, and just shut down their confidence. Um, so hopefully that that's that's what we do. But easier said than done, I think, isn't it? Yeah, and I like the idea that the Bristol game is a bit of a blueprint in terms of the way you set up and, and the team you pick. And um, I think if nothing else, Friday has kind of shown us there is that drop off between our kind of first choice team at the moment and and some of the players that you'd ideally rotate in um, when the opportunity allows. Um, so let's do some predictions then, um, Alex. Saturday afternoon at Quinns. I am backing us to... Alex Sanderson is going to bring something to this team that we've not had before, which is a bit of um, 
mental resilience uh, when we are away from home because I think he hasn't got the fear that Dimes had sort of um, imbued in him from a long time of, oh, we have to just win our home game. So I'm going to say that Sale are going to surprise everyone again, and I think we're going to surprise a lot of people this season by winning some games we shouldn't win and losing some games we shouldn't lose. So I will say Sale um, are going to win by 21 points to 19. I think it'll be really tight if we do win, but I just, I, I back us um, probably foolishly, but why not? Okay, I'm going Sale 16, uh, Quinns 10. I think we've got a really good chance of winning this game, but I think if we're going to win this game, it's going to come with us scoring less than 20 points and Quinns scoring less than 15 points. So, yeah, 16-10 for, for me. Alex? I, I was just going to say, I think 16-10 was the scoreline the last time we won at the Stoop. If my memory serves me correctly, when Cipriani was here. So, yeah, anyway... Yeah, and I remember that because I was there and I've never been happier in my entire life. Um, but but unfortunately, that memory was cancelled out by the start of... was Is it the start of last season or the, the start of the season before? I can't remember. Yeah, I think it was the start, the start of the season before where we sort of turned up and scored a couple of quick tries and then just just basically just didn't play any rugby and got battered. Um, yeah, I think we're not going to win. <laughs> uh, I, I'd, I'd love... I'd absolutely love it if 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 you were right and we had the mental resilience and I think we will, but I think this is just a really tough ask um in, in, in any shape or form. And I just think that Quinns are just, you know, it, the only way that we wouldn't is if almost Quinns are doing us this week, you know, where it's sort of like law of averages, you know, and it just sort of comes together where Quinns are due a bad week, especially if they beat Tigers this week. Uh, but I think Quinn's 24, Sale 15. We don't get a losing bonus point. I think it's going to be really tough. I think it's, and, and then I think, you know, but, you know, I'd love to be surprised on the upside. Just to make a point as well on on selection, I think I saw a lot on Twitter around sort of, you know, Ross Harrison, you know, and things like that. We've got to remember this lad has been one of our best performers over many, many, many years, right? He's had his season disrupted by injury. What he needs is game time to get fit basically to get match fit he's, he's coming in cold like mid-season and I think that's a real problem for him so I would start with Ross Harrison again uh, but obviously uh, bring in Will Griff on on the other side and hope that that does something and in terms of the balance in the back row I would uh, I would go Jono and Neil and, and Dan Dupria I think that that will do a job on Quinns hopefully and in the second row I'd have all changed I'd have Jean-Luc back into the second row with Josh Beaumont um, and I, I, I just really like the idea of those two playing together. Um, and then in the backs, Faf, AJ, Sam Hill, Sam James, Yard, Luke James. But I would stick with Roebuck for this one, just to stick with what I said before. Just you know, one of them in there, um, I think would make all all of the difference. And I might even have Doherty on the bench covering outside centre and wing as well. Let's see. Right, so we've got a little bit of news actually to finish off this week's um, podcast. We'll, we'll just do some really quick hits and, and kind of get some um, sort of quick responses. Um, the, the first bit of news that broke earlier in the week is that um, Will Griff John will be leaving the club at the end of the season uh, to join Scarlet's James as our resident Welshman. Um, you know, sort of quickly, you know, what, what are your thoughts on, on the decision of John to, to move, where he's moving to and, and kind of what that means overall? Well, he's, he's 28, um, you know, he might only have one World Cup cycle in him, so he's got to break into the Welsh team now, basically. 
um, and looking at the state of Wales, I think he's got a chance. So um, it's a great decision from him. Like, you know, you don't want to be wondering what if, do you? So I, I, I think fair play to him. Absolutely go for it. If it doesn't work out and he can't break into the squad for the next World Cup, then, you know, he, he, he might not stay there and, and we might be able to look to bring him back. But I think great just leaves a massive, massive hole now for us. You know, questions Jake, Jake Cooper Woolley has, has, has never really, uh, hasn't quite managed to show it in a sale jersey. Um, and Kuniu stays and is looking less effective this season than he was uh, before. So big loss for sale, but you know you, you've got to just put it up your hands when it's a situation like this and just say good on you, mate, and best of luck. It's always a little bit more understandable when they are not leaving for a rival club. Uh, you know, there, he's obviously going off to chase his international ambitions, um, and you know for that, you know we we wish him well and, and say thank you for his service because I mean he's been an absolutely uh, sort of diamond of a find if you if you will um, Alex next bit of news uh, someone who is sticking around is uh, Marlon Yard who was announced earlier this week um, has signed his uh, signed a contract extension to keep him at the club until the end of the 2023-24 season um, obviously it's a long term um, you know and the sort of talk was that he was on like a one, one plus two deal um, which after the end of his, his sort of first year of the extension, he could kick in uh, a clause for for another two years. It seems like this deal is actually going to go a little bit further than that. So, you know, what was your kind of thoughts on 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 the news that Yard has uh, has re-signed for another couple of seasons? Yeah, it's a massive show of faith, isn't it, from Sanderson? Um, I think James said that uh, in our in our chat um, when it was announced. And I think I, what's interesting is that when they were talking about the renewal, Sanderson was talking about what Marlon's brought off the field and in terms of his work with the charities and stuff and the, what he brings to the club from a culture perspective. And I think that's probably not, you know, Sanderson's clearly not going to sign people because they're nice blokes. Um, there is always going to be a rugby element to it. But when he is playing well, which he is at the moment, and he has shown some incredible form for this club, um, you know, other than after he came back from his injury when he was struggling a bit, getting back up to speed, um you know, pre-injury and then recently, uh, sort of this season, he has he's been fantastic. And I think, you know, that it, the contract is deserved. It's you know, it's taken through to pretty much the end of his career, really, isn't it? Um, but he seems to love the club and he's really happy with it. From you know what we've seen on Twitter and that kind of thing, he's doing some really good things and bringing a really good culture to the club. He's a really good ambassador. Um, and I think, you know, he his is probably a story that if you want someone like Tom Roebuck to sort of learn from and, and, you know, he's played for England. He's maybe never quite made it at at an international level like he could have done um, for one reason or another, but that is as good a lesson to any for, for Roebuck to have, you know, him to sort of say, okay, this is where I went wrong and this is, you know, what you can do and and what, you know, get your head down and work hard. And I think it's, He's a good player to have around the club off the field and he has shown performances on the field that fully deserve a contract extension. So I think it's really good news. And, and I think that that point around the culture and, and you know what he's bringing to the squad as a person as well as a player is really interesting and pretty symptomatic of how Sanderson's going to operate. And I think it's a good thing because you know it's it shows the sort of club we want to be. And um, I think it's... Uh, just positive news all around, really, and and hopefully you can um, that sort of confidence from having the long term contract will will breed the the performances on the field as well. 
And then lastly, the, the big news that actually broke yesterday evening was a little bit more uh, non-sale specific, uh, and that's that the Gallagher Premiership will not have relegation um, as part of its 2020-2021 uh, season. So obviously, this this you, could, you know we could talk about this for hours, and it will spiral into conversation about ring fencing. But you know, James, you know, what, what was your immediate reaction to, to the news that for for this season at least, uh, you know, relegation will be scrapped, um, and the 2021-22 season will expand the Premiership out to 13 teams instead of 12. I think ultimately it was probably the only decision that was going to happen for this season, just because of the way the points are being allocated. Off, you know, and it, you know, Sale have played nine games in a row at week on week on week. You got some teams who have had like two or three weeks off to rest. You know, it's it's just it's a disjointed uh, table, and you look at it and you see how tight it is. I mean, we could be down in like ninth or tenth if we go on a couple of bad losses. So, um, you know, I, I think it was the only decision that could be made for this year. But I, my first initial impression was that this year only my ass. You know, this is clearly some clubs are now going to use this momentum to try and close off this league permanently. They might they might make a compromise and allow it to be a 14-person league. That might be the compromise, but they want to close it off. And uh, I can understand from a commercial perspective, but relegation, uh, we've been down there. It's stressful, but you, it, it adds so much to this league. It make, makes it enormously competitive. You don't have games which are just worth nothing. Next season, we're going to have a bye week. It's going to be like bloody Super Rugby. You know, there'll be weeks where there'll be a week where Sale aren't playing. Which I think you know, we, oh, it was a bit weird. I'm, I'm sure we'll get used to it. Um, um, so yeah, I, what was my initial thing? I think it's the only decision that could be made for this season. But I think let's have a proper debate about it for the future. And I, I think it needs to be a proper debate rather than it. The way it was all worded, I think, was very much like we're just testing the waters, but we're really just getting people used to it. Watch this space. Yeah, I agree. I am massively, massively anti-closing the league off, um, having thought about it, because I hadn't really made the decision until it was kind of going to be real. But I just think there's so much that relegation brings to our league, but also to the championship, because if there isn't that incentive for people to get promoted, you're not going to have a strong second league. And, And if you look at leagues that have been successful around the world in sport, you know, if you want to be commercially successful, you need to have, A, the jeopardy, and you also need to have a, a league below you that has got some incentive for people to come up. And, you know, look at the teams at the top of the league at the moment, Bristol and Exeter, both are in the championship and both, you know, obviously have had a lot of cash investment, but people are more likely to invest in a championship club and bring them up than they are to invest in a premiership club where it's expensive and, and the risk is, is far sort of, the rewards are less than the risk because you could go down from the Premiership. And I just think if you want to bring money and excitement into the game, you need a strong Premiership and a strong Championship. And we don't have a strong Championship. And by closing off the Premiership, you you lose the potential of having a strong Championship. I, I couldn't agree more. The, 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 the route to growing rugby union and strengthening the commerciality of the clubs is to have a strong Championship. And the Championship is getting weaker. And there needs to be a much closer relationship Instead of just having 13 premiership clubs that only look after their own interests, pulling up the ladder is short-termist. What they need to be doing is almost 
a bit like in France, where the, it's the same, it's the same, it's the same um, company, as it were, running both the top league and the next league, all professional rugby. And if they want the championship to remain professional, like properly professional, then that's the route. Premier Rugby and the championship have to become one organisation, and they have to help them not just by loaning players to give them game time. And they they become sort of like nominal A teams. That's not the answer. The answer is by making these clubs commercially viable and building them up. Yeah, you'll still produce the players that which you, the top teams can go and go and bring in. Yeah, but that's the route, and it needs to be a competitive league. In that way, teams wouldn't be as worried about going down. Parachute payments wouldn't have to be in place to make it completely lopsided and a bit of a shit show anyway. Um, and you know. You, you could have like cup competitions that it would open up so much more. But instead, the Premiership are going to cut the rest of the rugby adrift, and they're going to become even more adrift from the ground. You know, the grassroots game. I think that 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 is a real risk for me, um, and it's a route to the bottom, not the route to um, you know continuing success. It might it might protect from downside short term, but I, which I can understand. Everyone's worried about short term risk. But there's no sort of long, long-term long vision here, and that's what I'm worried about. What worries me about this is that you've got 13 self-interested club owners who will, you know, six of whom will want relegation, six of whom won't want relegation, so they're never going to agree. And what you need is leadership, and what PRL have never, ever shown in this game is leadership. So you need someone from CVC, and you need a bit from BT Sport to say, let's have a, you know, a proper th- debate about this but fundamentally if if it comes down to a decision by the clubs you're never going to end up with consensus because you're going to have half of the league who don't want it and half of the league who do and I think you need someone to kind of take that decision away from the clubs because they will never they will make as you say short-term decisions because that is what they are worried about they won't make long-term decisions for the good of the game they will make either short-term decisions for the good of their club or long-term decisions for the good of their club. And, you know, taking away relegation is better for club owners because it removes risk. Um, You know, the reward remains the same, but it removes their risk. So why would they not do it? So you do need some leadership. But unfortunately, the one thing we've never seen from BRL really is leadership, isn't it? So um, that is my worry, but I await to be proved wrong. Couldn't agree more, gents. And I think that was a really good conversation around the merits and and uh, pitfalls of, of ring fencing, at least for, for even just a season. So that's the podcast for this week. Um, thank you to everyone who, uh, who's who been listening. Thanks to everyone who sent in three-word reviews. Uh, thanks to everyone who uh, made a pretty dreadful Friday night, at least a little bit of fun on Twitter uh, with some spirited debate. Um, we are now uh, going to move on to um, our second recording of the morning, which is our uh, bonus podcast on the Patreon. We're doing a subscriber mailbag, and we're letting uh, you, our Patreon subscribers, um, dictate the topics that we talk about. Um, so if you want access to that, please do join, sign up on our, our Patreon account. Um, this podcast will go out as usual, um, but, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to bringing um, a very sort of specific focus on the games and then some wider topics, which we can get our teeth into uh, this week. Um, for our followers on both Twitter and Patreon. Uh, So thanks very much uh, for listening. Uh, Thank you to Alex and James for joining us. And we will speak to you, hopefully, after a resounding bounce-back win at Quinn's next week. 